Chapter 21 The Hunt Isola followed him through the woods, stealthy as a pine marten in the dark. Ronan reached his hut and the curtain fell behind him. She heard the sound of flint on steel as he lit the oil lamp, and the hut began to glow like a crucible, light leaking from the windows and the cracks between the stones. The stench of human hung heavy in the air. The she did not often kill humans, any more than they would slaughter a laying hen or a cow that yielded milk. But the custom of stealing both slaves and cattle from other clans ran deeper than the laws that prevented it. It was more exciting than the hunt, and with a great deal more at stake. Wars had been started that way. Now, with the visiting host in situ, Ronan needed protection, and Isola had been briefed to guard the hut. She found a tall tree and began to climb. Halfway up, she stripped off her garment and wedged it in the crook of a branch. The night was cold and a storm was brewing, but she did not mind the rain. She climbed on, claws extended, until she reached the thinner branches far above the canopy of the forest. The human smell was fainter now, and, after a while, Ronan extinguished the lamp. The wind was rising and there was music in the treetops. Isola bared her teeth and gave a long, ululating howl that sounded no different from the wind in the trees. She called out to the storm in its own language, and the tree whipped violently beneath her, tossing her back and forth until she no longer had any sense of herself as separate from the storm. The wind spoke to her in the language of the she. Then, remembering her responsibilities, she climbed back down to the lower branches and kept watch. She would have liked it better if Ronan had lived with his own kind. Humans lived apart from the clan they served. They had their own living spaces, over the hill in Ballyduane, the clustered cottages of the weavers and potters and metalsmiths, the tanners and dyers, the brewers and bakers, the farmers and the foresters, the cheesemakers and the butchers, the horn carvers and the candle makers. But Ronan showed no desire to associate with any of them. Humans made life more comfortable for the she, and almost every clan in Eldahuk used them. They undertook distasteful tasks without complaining, kept themselves at a distance, and did relatively little harm. Isola avoided them. Humans revolted her. She had been to their world and seen what they had done to it. A cold rain came in squalls, washing the taint of the human from her skin. Isola lifted her face to the rain, and the poem that she had heard that evening ran through her mind. A she-poem was not static. It was composed, performed once and never heard again, but she remembered every syllable. A poem for her warrior daughter, Niman. The children of the she were impossibly rare. Pregnancies were long and difficult, and the birthing process was fraught with hazard. Isola remembered the moment, deep in the woods, 
with the raw scrap of being in her arms, preparing to grieve, not daring to hope. But the whelp kicked and mewled and fastened on her breast. She checked between its legs, and to her relief the whelp had both male and female organs. It was normal. It was alive. Dawn broke over the forest, and it was hard not to interpret it as a harbinger of hope. Bloodstained, weary, and no longer alone, Isola cradled the whelp that would be nameless until it could walk. So few she-children lived through infancy. Human babies, so hardy and common, were a source of bitter envy. We are superior in every other way but this, she thought. In days gone by, and largely governed by ignorance, she-mothers had placed their ailing whelps in human homes. Some said that human milk had healing powers, but the whelps rarely thrived, and the human babies that they took in exchange were very little comfort. This practice was banned now, but the memory of it remained in both worlds. Nimon had always been strong, but, even so, she had nearly died of fever. Another time she had fallen while hunting, and lain motionless for three days, before sitting up and asking if her horse was lame. And then, when she chose her gender, Nimon joined the fighting she. She became a bear. Isola was not surprised. She knew that her daughter had been born with a warrior soul. When Nimon volunteered for a human world assignment, Isola was not entirely surprised. Her daughter did not feel that any world was sufficient to contain her. What astonished them both was that the Togon elders accepted her offer. It was always hazardous for the she to live in the human world, and Nimon, although resourceful and adventurous, did not have the appropriate training. Isola fought their decision, but the elders would not be swayed. Nimon left. The human took her place in the clan, and Isola was commanded to guard it. She would do so with her life. Her daughter's exile was entwined with its fate. Isola heard something move below. She listened carefully. Clouds covered the moon, but she thought she could see a shadow on the edge of the trees. Very cautiously she began to climb down. The imposter moved into the clearing, unaware that he was being watched. Isola recognised it as one of the Dabarku. She unslung her hunting bow and took an arrow from the quiver around her waist. Isola drew the bowstring. She considered challenging the imposter, but decided to wait. The Dabarku was behaving in a very strange way. He prowled around the hut, but did not enter it, and then he left as quietly as he had come. Isola stepped into the clearing and sniffed the air. It smelt of longing and desire. As Ronan brushed the thick black mud from his pony's woolly undercarriage, he wondered what he could possibly have done to offend Isola. Female emotions had always been a mystery to him, and the she, so reasonable in other ways, behaved in a very human way when upset. Isola was not speaking to him, and, if this were not trouble enough, 
Hobie had liberated himself during the night and been found two miles away, covered in mud. You probably didn't give him enough hay, said Elil, the she who had been tasked with retrieving Hobie. Ronan grunted. He had left the pony enough hay to satisfy three normal horses. The mud, thankfully, had dried enough to brush off and fell to the stable floor in chunks. Hobie nuzzled him affectionately, then bit him sharply on the arm. Ronan swore and swiped Hobie across the snout. The pony went back to eating hay. The hunting horn sounded, and Ronan hastily strapped the girth around Hobie's considerably cleaner belly. The reins had not yet been mended, but they were really just for show. Hobie tended to go wherever he wanted. His hairy ears pricked forward as the hands surged into the yard, and Ronan felt a sudden sense of misgiving. Isola had invited him to follow the hunt, held in honour of their departing guests, but had left no further instructions. The yard was a seething mass of hands. Some of them were wolf hands, almost the same height as Hobie. But there were also grey hands, deer hands, and a score of uncontrollable terriers who ran between the legs of horses, nipping at fetlocks and yapping incessantly. The huntsman, a magnificent dark-brown she on a magnificent dark-brown horse, cracked his whip and called out commands. Many of the she hunted on foot, the dog-handlers and the spear-bearing hunters that Ronan irreverently termed the pig-stickers, but most were mounted. The visiting she had their own horses, smaller and sturdier than those of their hosts, their long manes braided. Ronan could see Isola now on her restless chestnut with a hunting bow strapped to her back and a blackthorn staff tied to her saddle, talking and laughing with the visitors. The dog handlers ran to secure their hands. The greyhounds would run on long leashes. The terriers were stuffed unceremoniously into baskets and carried on the backs of their handlers. The gate of the yard was dragged open and the crowd parted to make way for a runner who came from the kennels with a hound of a very different sort, bulky and silent. It reached the gate, put its nose to the ground, and set off into the forest at a steady lope, its handler by its side. The hunt followed. Ronan had hoped that Isola would explain what exactly was expected of a rider who followed the hunt, but she was not speaking to him, and there was nobody else that he cared to ask. They were all gone now anyway, he thought, inserting the bit into Hobie's reluctant mouth. He would have to work it out for himself. Hobie whirled enthusiastically around the yard, which was littered with droppings of horse and hound as Ronan struggled to mount. By the time he secured his seat, the pony had decided that he had been left behind. He raised his head, gave a loud neigh of loneliness and despair, and plunged through the gateway into the woods. Somewhere in the distance the horn sounded again. The forest was not thick, and Hobie dodged around trees with an astonishing athleticism and without slowing down in the slightest. They came to a ditch, and he jumped it without breaking his stride. 
the sounds of the hunt were growing closer. Ronan hoped that, when Hobie caught up with the stragglers, he would slow down. He did not. The pony sheared through the heel of the hunt, scattering runners and dog handlers before him. Ronan, clinging white-faced to the reins, heard the yowl of an injured greyhound and many voices cursing him in English and in she. The pony galloped on regardless. They came to a log fence and Ronan, braced for a refusal, felt Hobie's fat, hairy body rise into the air. He caught a terrifying glimpse of a ditch on the other side. Hobie cleared that too. Ronan, astonished to find himself still on board, sat back and pulled hard. He rounded a corner and saw riders ahead. Hobie, pleased at having found the other horses at last, slowed to a decorous trot. Ronan took a deep, shuddering breath and told himself that the worst was over as his pony jogged quietly behind the others. They rode under a limestone crag covered with hazel bushes and wild flowers and nooks of fine grass. At the foot of the crag was a trout stream and on the far side of the stream beech woods mounted the slope to a ferny hillside. They followed the course of the stream up the hill until it plunged into a rocky gorge by way of a high fall. There was a pool at the bottom where the horses stopped to drink. The horn blew on the far side of the stream a series of short staccato notes that meant nothing to Ronan but were clearly understood by Hobie who leapt forward irrespective of the horses that were standing in his way and charged through the woods. Oh fuck, thought Ronan, I'm going to die. He ducked as the pony galloped under a low branch and scrambled up a rock face that would have challenged a mountain goat. As they emerged onto the mountainside, Ronan realised that his pony had taken a shortcut. The hunt lay spread below them, moving silently towards its quarry. A magnificent twelve-pointed stag that stood on the high ground, upwind and as yet oblivious. Hobie plunged down the mountainside, calling loudly to his stable companions. The hunting field, Ronan realised in a fleeting moment of clarity, was a visual representation of the hierarchy of the she. Those subtle nuances of status and rank, previously so hard to grasp, suddenly became clear as he charged through the hindermost. He now understood these to be the low-ranking she, into the equivalent of the middle classes. They reached the first flight of the hunt, and Ronan realised as he burst through them like a battering ram that this was a blunder of catastrophic proportions. He caught a glimpse of Isola's furious face, but she was already behind him, as were the huntsman, the master and the hounds. The only thing in front of him was the stag who had taken fright and was leaping down the hillside. Ronan clung helplessly to the mane of his galloping pony. Mm -hmm.